Father, we are thankful for your word, thankful for your people, thankful for your spirit. And again, God, we ask that you, in all your power, would show yourself strong to equip, motivate, convict, build up, save this morning as we look into your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I found my place here, this thing. Okay. So, real quick, uh, as, as we've wor- started working through Hebrews, I wanted to go back and review where we've been so far uh, from chapters 1 into chapter 2, where we're at now. And that glorious intro uh, in chapter 1, Jesus as the final perfect word, uh, Jesus as being the exact representation of God, the very glory of God manifest. And again, the whole book just started with a big old giant bang of Jesus is better, right? <clears throat> and then uh, the writer went on to say he's better than angels. And we're like, well, that don't really mean much to us. But remember, there were words going around saying that maybe this Jesus guy who died on the cross was just an angel and messenger of God. And the writer's like, no, 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 he's way better than angels. He says, matter of fact, if we need to pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we don't drift from this message of Jesus, the final perfect word of God who's better than angels. And then the last message we looked at, we looked at man's privileged place in the plan of God and how God has put everything under man's feet to share authority and dominion with Jesus And though we don't yet see everything subjected to man, but we see Him. And he's speaking there of Jesus. We see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. So we start today by recovering verse 9, which was the last verse we covered in the previous message on Hebrews two weeks ago, and that message on verses 5 to 9. Now in that message again... We saw that at this present time, we don't see man exalted and fulfilling his co-regent role with everything submitted to him, but we do see Jesus, who became a man and as the second Adam fulfilled his role as God and man, and thus he became the forerunner of what would ultimately become man's destiny. And note the because here. Jesus is crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. And this establishes the theme that will carry us through the next passage from today. Suffering leading to glory in the kingdom of God. And Jesus embodied that perfectly in His ministry as our great high priest, perfect perfect man and perfect God. He was crowned with glory and honor after His earthly ministry because He suffered to the point of death. We also brought up Philippians 2 in that message two weeks ago that said Jesus became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, and therefore God has highly exalted Him and given Him the name that is above every name. Jesus' suffering, His tasting death on behalf of His people, led to the man Jesus being crowned with glory and honor, which was again a foretaste of what is in store for God's people. Human beings made perfect and reigning and ruling with Jesus for all eternity according to the preordained plan of God. We've seen a lot in Hebrews already, haven't we? And it just keeps getting better. I said last time, it's like you just get in, it gets bigger and bigger as you get into it. And I've got to be honest with you, I looked at this passage for this week, trying to determine 
was just going to do verse 10, and then I thought maybe we should do the rest of the chapter. And I'm like, well, let's do 9 to 13. And it's just like, oh my goodness, I'm glad we're doing 9 to 13 because it's just so good. So let's start in verse 10 then, having reviewed verse 9. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. I know we do this a lot, but I think it's good that we read those two verses, 9 and 10, together to get the full effect of this four. So here's 9 and 10 together. But we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that He, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. My goodness. Some of these sentences in Hebrews are just absolutely blow your hair back if you had any hair. I don't, so I hope your hair gets blown back. So this four here. Coming out of saying that Jesus tasted death for everyone, we get our four. In pointing out that Jesus suffered and died, the writer gives us the reason for that. Because again, think about it. If you're God, there's a lot of ways you could come and save people, right? I mean, you could have just come and blown a trumpet and said, hey, those people that I love, you're saved. Congratulations. Why did He choose the path that He chose? Why did He choose sending His Son, God the Son, in flesh as a human and then killing Him? Seems upside down and backwards, right? For, for it was fitting in pointing out that Jesus suffered and died, the writer gives us the reason for it. For it was fitting. That's why he did it. For it was fitting. He's going to explain why this is the path that was chosen for Jesus as Savior. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist. Now it would be natural to jump to the conclusion that this is referencing Jesus, but it's not. He's speaking of God the Father. When we get to the latter part of the verse, this He is the one who made the founder of salvation perfect through suffering. So, for it was fitting that the Father, for whom and by, for whom and by whom all things exist. And maybe you're thinking, but don't all things exist for and by Jesus? And the answer is yes, they do. But again, one God, three persons. What is true of the Father is true of the Son. What is true of the Father and the Son is true of the Spirit. It's their roles within the Godhead that make them separate yet one. Okay? So in vice, vice, versa, versa, right? It's important to know who is relating to whom and how in these passages as we talk about this Trinitarian theology. And here, for the Father, it was fitting that He does what He does to and through the Son. So keep that in mind as we work through this. But first, we see that the Father is referred to as the one for whom and by whom all things exist. So God created everything, right? That's pretty basic. But now, listen, God created everything. It's all His. If you create it, it belongs to you. Right? And so what belongs to God? Everything. 
stardust, black holes, ants, dirt, hair. I'll stop with the hair thing. It all belongs to Him. He made it. And that's a major truth. And I'm afraid we're prone to kind of shrug and say, yeah, yeah. But it would do us well to ponder and meditate on this truth and let it form our lives. Especially when we don't like the way God's doing something. Or when we don't agree with His ways. It would benefit us all, individually and corporately, to remember it's all His. It belongs to Him and He made it. Why? For His own glory. My mom used to say the world don't revolve around you. I didn't believe that for a long time. I am still struggle with it a little bit. But this is not about me. Everything is for the glory of God. And that sets the stage for this passage today. Because we see that this great God is in the process of doing what? Of bringing many sons to glory. Now that makes our ears perk up and we go, yeah, yeah, that's good, yay. And, and we should be happy about it because it's great news. That is referencing what He's doing for His people. He has adopted them into His family. He made us sons. Again, that's a big yay. And His plan is to bring those many sons, and note that He has many sons, to glory. He's going to bring them all to glory. We said last time that Adam had forfeited his exalted place as God's co-regent when he sinned. He fell from that position. He was still in the image of God, but that image was now bent, broken, fallen. Well, God's plan, thank God, is to bring His children back into the perfect image of Himself that He created Adam and Eve in originally. That's glory. Glory is a right representation and comprehension of something or someone's full purpose or beauty or potential. And man was made to glorify God. And sin has limited man's ability to do so. But God's plan is to bring a redeemed group of mankind back into that perfectly reflecting image. For them to bring Him glory. Which means He's got to bring them to glory if they're going to glorify Him. And to which we say, yay. But now watch this. It was fitting for Him in bringing these many sons to glory to do what? The writer of Hebrews says that it was fitting that He should make the founder of their salvation perfect through what? Through suffering. We may not say yay to that, right? Maybe we don't like that thought so much. But again, whose is it? Whose plan is it? Who's the plan for? In verse 9, we saw that Jesus' glory was due to because of His suffering and His death. And here the writer expands on that. For it was fitting for God to do it that way. Now that word fitting means that it was proper, suitable, right, or appropriate. It was right for God to do this. To do what? to make the founder of His children's salvation perfect through suffering. Now keep in mind the background of Hebrews. It's being written to a predominantly Jewish group of followers of Jesus who are starting to suffer for their faith. 
And it's being written to encourage them to stand strong and keep their eyes on Jesus in the midst of it. Things were starting to feel a little bit out of kilter for them. Things were getting a little uncertain for them. They were uncomfortable. Are we doing the right thing here? Maybe we were wrong for choosing this way. I mean, we're seeking God's blessing. We're seeking to do His will. And if you think about the Jewish Old Testament mindset of blessing, blessing was grain and new wine and fatty portions and abundance and the promised land and milk and honey. So surely this suffering, these trials, must show that we're not under God's blessing, right? That God's not pleased with us? Commentator Donald Guthrie says this, It must be remembered that to Jews... The idea of a suffering Messiah was abhorrent. And the Christian claim that it was fitting must be viewed against this background. End quote. These Jewish believers were starting to feel the heat of suffering. And so the writer of Hebrews is pointing back to the suffering of Jesus as the example of what they are to expect. And he's saying here in verse 10 that it was right, fitting, appropriate that the Father would perfect the Savior Son through suffering. And the literal wording means it was entirely appropriate when He says it was fitting. Now this gives us some enigmatic things to think about. Two things specifically I want to bring up. First, what does it mean that the Father was perfecting the Son? That's a question worth asking. Second, how was that perfection brought about by suffering? So let's look at that first question. What does it mean that the Father was making the Son perfect? I mean, Jesus was perfect, right? He didn't need perfecting. He wasn't starting from sin and moving into holiness. He was born truly God, truly man, holy. That which is formed in you will be called holy, the, the, the offspring of God. So was He perfect or was He not? Well, this says that He has to be made perfect. But He was perfect from eternity past and will be perfect into eternity future. So He could be imperfect and be God, right? So was He God? He was God. John Piper is helpful here in saying this. He tells us that Hebrews 5, 8, and 9 give us the answer. Although He was a son, speaking of Jesus, He learned obedience through what He suffered. And being made perfect... He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. Okay? This is what Piper says about that. Here, being made perfect means learning obedience through suffering. Piper goes on to say, This does not mean that He was once disobedient and then became obedient. It means that Jesus moved from untested obedience into suffering and then through suffering into tested and proven obedience. And this proving himself obedient through suffering was his being perfected. End of quote. So being made perfect does not mean that he reached a point of perfection. It means that he completed his task perfectly and it was fitting that God would take him through suffering in order for him to learn obedience through suffering. He had forever been exalted in the presence of God as the Son of God being worshipped by angels... And God said, you know what, it's right, it's good, it's perfect that I would show them what it means to suffer well and to be obedient through suffering. So the founder of our salvation 
had to learn obedience through suffering. So as we'll see when we get to Hebrews 5, whenever that is, Jesus experienced suffering to model forth obedience in the midst of that suffering. And that proving Himself by obedience through suffering showed His perfection. Okay, so that helps answer the second question too. How was that perfecting brought about by suffering? Well again, Jesus' perfection as displayed through His obedience was magnified in the midst of suffering. It's real easy to obey when everything's good and easy, right? The real test of obedience comes in the fire. Bow down or I'll cast you in the fire. Oh, well, hmm, hmm. burn us up, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said. Throw us in because I'm going to obey God rather than man. So it was fitting, it was right, entirely appropriate that the Father shows the perfection of the Son through suffering. Jesus was not a privileged, protected, touch-me-not. Now we've said many times today already that He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that's the perfect paradox of God's working through Jesus and also through us. John Stott says this, Any contemporary observer who saw Christ die would have listened with astonished incredulity to the claim that the crucified was a conqueror. Had He not been rejected by His own nation... Betrayed, denied, and deserted by his own disciples and executed by authority from the Roman procurator? Look at him there, spread-eagled and skewered on his cross, robbed of all freedom of movement, strung up with nails, pinned there and powerless. It appears to be total defeat. Stott goes on to say, If there is victory, it's the victory of pride, prejudice, jealousy, hatred, cowardice, and brutality. Yet, the Christian claim is that the reality is the opposite of the appearance. What looks like, and indeed was, the defeat of goodness by evil is also, and more certainly, the defeat of evil by goodness. Overcome there, he was himself overcoming. Crushed by the ruthless power of Rome, he was himself crushing the serpent's head. The victim was the victor, and the cross is still the throne from which he rules the world. End of quote. And that was fitting. It was right and appropriate for the Father to perfect the Son this way. But you know what that means? That means He's going to perfect us and bring us to glory. How? Through suffering, right? To which we may protest and say, God, you should not do it that way. I'm afraid we've adopted an abundance mindset as true blessing. I fear that we have much more of the prosperity gospel in us than we care to admit. We expect God to deliver us from suffering, not to walk with us through it. Not to bring it into our lives, much less for suffering to lead to glory for us and Him. And we certainly don't see the process of perfecting us through suffering as fitting or right. No. But for us to associate with Jesus and become like Him, we must share in what He modeled for us. Everybody's like, oh, shoot. 
I liked that picture-perfect representation of God and He's reigning and ruling. But listen. Verses 11 and 12. For He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Oh, that word. That is why He is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Y'all, this is really good stuff right here. We have a couple of Old Testament references here that we'll look at as we get to them. But again, our verse starts with a word for, right? It was fitting for the Father to perfect the Son through suffering, and that Son is the founder of salvation for the many sons who would be brought to glory. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. God did what was right and appropriate in making the path of obedience for the Son through suffering for He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Oh, that we can see this. Now we've got to dig in a bit here and we've got to really think and, and have the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit t- to see this. This is speaking of the connection, the commonality, the sameness of Jesus' path of obedience and the believer's path of obedience. Both find the beginning of the plan for them in God Himself. Jesus, the Son, was sanctified, which means set apart by God the Father. Well, guess what that means for those who would follow Jesus? So are they. God Himself is the source of their salvation. Jesus is the one who sanctifies, and those whom He is sanctifying share the same source, the same plan, the same power as Jesus Himself. And don't miss that. The same God who planned Christ's life of obedience through suffering has planned the life and path of all those who would follow in Jesus' footsteps as believers in Him. They all have the same source, Jesus and His followers. That, the writer says, is why He, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers. Now that might not hit you very hard, but that's an amazing statement. Jesus, the perfect spotless Lamb, Son of God, is not ashamed to call those who follow Him His brothers. What's that mean? That means that the Son of God recognizes the adopted sons as His brothers and He's not ashamed of them because they share the same life as Him. That's what it means to be saved. Sharing the same life with and as Jesus Christ Himself. And that should set us back a little bit. That should make us go, hmm. Or, oh my goodness. Or, wow. Tell me more. Okay. With God as the fountainhead for the Son and His brothers, listen, the plan and the power are assured. That's why Jesus looks at us and says, that's my brother. If I'm a Christian, if I'm a follower of Jesus, Jesus points to me and says, that's my brother. He's not ashamed of me. 
Anybody ever feel like Jesus is ashamed of you? Anybody ever hear your parents say, Jesus is crying because of what you're doing right now? Parents, don't do that to your kids. He's not ashamed. He looks with joy and love and pride. He says, that's my brother. Wow. We share the very same life as him, and that's why he's not ashamed. And then the writer quotes Psalm 22.22 as an example and proof of this in Hebrews 2.12 when he says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. This is beautiful. The writer of Hebrews brings up the words of the psalmist David here and applies these words as though they come from the mouth of Jesus Himself, which technically I guess they do because the words are inspired by the Holy Spirit, Father, Son, Spirit. Jesus is the Word. So when David is writing this down, inspired by the Holy Spirit, it is Jesus Himself saying it. And Jesus says to the Father, I will tell of your name, Father, to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Now get that picture in your head. Jesus talking to His followers who have been adopted into God's family by God's doing and Jesus' sacrifice. And in the midst of talking to His brothers, He is praising God with and to them. Like a son raising a toast to his dad at a family reunion, extolling the greatness of the father and bringing everyone's attention to that greatness. The son praising the name of the father in the midst of all of his brothers. And they all say, Hear, hear! He is great. And we're in his family. And we are glad to be his children. And it's Jesus leading that chorus. What a beautiful picture, right? And Jesus is not ashamed to call them His brothers because the greatness of the Father and His plan is what made it all possible. When we look at the outcome of our salvation, when we look at the path, when we look at everything, we point back to God and say, You did this! You're the one who deserves all the glory to the praise of Your glorious grace. All the suffering, all the trials, all the good, all the bad, all the hard, all the easy, it all came directly through your hand for your glory. And we say, here, here. Now read that all together again with what we've just discussed in mind and before we move into our last verse today. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. <laughs> wow. We've got one more verse to go, though. Two more Old Testament references in it to cover as we finish up this passage today. Verse 13. Shoo-ba-doo, I can't find it. There it is. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold... I and the children God has given me. Now this is pretty interesting. Now keep in mind we just came out of verses 11 and 12 which talked about Jesus and His followers all having the same source. And since that's true, Jesus was not ashamed to call Him His brothers as evidenced by the Psalm 22 passage. Well, the writer of Hebrews references two other verses to show that Jesus is not ashamed to call His followers His kin. And again he says... And then references Psalm 18.2. Then actually, it's a little cloudy as to what he's quoting here because he says, I will put my trust in Him. 
But that's just a fragment of Psalm 18.2. And in our English Standard Version, it actually says this, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. So if you take uh, in, in whom I take refuge here, that's what he's quoting. Okay? But you're saying that's not what it says. Well, remember two things. First of all, the writer of Hebrews is operating from the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. We talked about that. Um, I think in maybe the second message. So there, that could be an explanation of why it's different. Or also we have this. Look at Isaiah 8, 17 and 18. Because the, the last part, Behold, I am the children have given me, is a quote from Psalm uh, Isaiah 8, 18. But watch when we put 17 and 18 together of Isaiah 8. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. So this might be the quote too. Okay? Next verse. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. Um, so again, did it come from Psalm? Did it come, did it come from Isaiah? The point is this. It was very, very, very common in the Old Testament for people to put their trust in God. Okay? So whether it was the psalmist or the prophet, the call is to put their trust in God. And if you look at this part here, um, out, of, out of Isaiah. In Isaiah's passage, Isaiah is pointing to his children as a sign of God's faithfulness and reliability. And then the writer of Hebrews is using this quote like Jesus is saying it. Again, like he did with David, the psalmist, right? And Jesus is saying it as another sign that he's not ashamed to call his followers his what? Hmm... That's interesting. He didn't call them brothers here. He calls them his children. It's the only passage in the New Testament that refers to Christians as the children of Jesus. Everywhere else it's brothers or friends. And that just goes to reemphasize a Trinitarian mindset, right? God's children could rightly be called Jesus' children. They are of His seed, right? Because Jesus is God... But more often, because of His role as the Son of God and His ministry as God in the flesh, Christians are usually called Jesus' brothers. But as we see here, they or we could also rightly be called Jesus' children too. And so He's not ashamed to call them brothers, nor is He ashamed to call us His very own children. Which again is just beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. We are signs of God's faithfulness to Jesus. Jesus looks at God and praises God and say, look what you've done. And then He looks at us and He says, look what you've done. Another indicator that both Jesus and we can put our trust, our hope in God as the source of everything we need. All we have, all we need, all we want is You. He is faithful and worthy of our trust and our praise and Jesus says that Himself, and we can just echo that all through eternity. Well, obviously we've covered a lot today. And we're going to cover a lot more because we're going to look at application through three S's. Three S's. Share, suffer. What's the third one? Source. Share, suffer, source.
First application point. And again, quickly, why application? Because it doesn't matter what it means if we don't put it into practice. It doesn't matter. We are supposed to put into practice what we've heard and seen and learned and been convicted of and grown from today. We don't just grow our head knowledge. Hopefully we grow our heart knowledge, which works itself out through our hand knowledge. Okay? Head, heart, hands. Christianity is a whole person experience. And if you're not living out what you're learning, you're not doing Christianity right. That's why application. Because we could just get together and say, this is what this means, and go, high five, let's go eat lunch. But we need to do. Be doers of the Word and not hearers only. So first, application point is share. Oh, church. God has made it so, in and through His plan, that we as followers of Jesus share in the very life and inheritance of Christ Himself. That's, that's a huge statement. And I'm, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to beat you up. I don't want to beat me up. I'm afraid we are so numb to that. Just, yeah, we, we agree with that. Yes. Yeah. I share in the very life and inheritance of Jesus Christ. Wow! We don't think about it enough. Jesus did not do what He did simply, only for Himself. Now, it's all to the praise of His glorious grace. We're going to get to that in a second. But He included us in it. And we get the blessings and the results and the outcome of all that He has done because we get to share in His very life. What's the most common way that the New Testament identifies a follower of Jesus? It says that we are in Christ. You're like, what about disciple? Not even close. In Christ laps it. What about Christian? I think it's only two or three times in the New Testament. Your primary identification as a follower of Jesus is that you are in Christ. Union with Christ. So that everything that is His is yours. His life, His inheritance, even His glory. Now be careful. Our passage today mentions Jesus' followers as the sons of God and the brothers of Jesus, and the children of Jesus. Okay? All of those titles show clearly that Christians are those who inherit all that God has for them. We share in all that His kingdom entails. And what is His? Everything! Watch this. We've, this has been an application before. We, when we went through John... A decade ago, it was there too. Jesus says this in His high priestly prayer, I do not ask for these only, just these 11 guys in front of me, because He knew Judas wasn't going to get it. But also for those who will believe in Me through their word, that they may all be one, 
just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now watch this. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. God spent the whole Old Testament saying, I will share my glory with no one. And then Jesus starts the New Testament by saying, I'm sharing my glory with you. <laughs> we went to Monticello for our anniversary trip. And there's different tours at Monticello. If you're not familiar with Monticello, it's Thomas Jefferson's home. And there's, there's the middle, very middle, there's a big dome on top of the, of the building, of the house. Well, there's a special tour where you get to go in the dome. It's more expensive than the other ones, of course, but... But we took that tour. We went in the dome. All the other plebeians didn't get to go in the dome. We're walking by. I'm like, I've been in the dome. I've been in the dome. You'll never see the dome. <laughs> a special. Because I've been in the dome. Goodness gracious, Christians. Do you understand the specialness, the joy, the beauty, the glory that is yours because you are in Christ. Amen. You share His glory. And He is bringing many sons to glory. Oh, we don't think about that enough. I cracked up when I got up this morning and saw what passages Andrew had picked to read for the opening stuff because he picked this and which was brought up again. Um, but it's an application point. It was there. I didn't hijack his reading, okay? He hijacked my reading, okay? So I'm going to read again Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. And, and speaking of this application point for share, and we share in the glory of God, we share in the blessings of Christ Himself. Just watch, especially noting all the in hymns in it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance." having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, 
when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. <laughs> wow! A couple years ago, I'd have covered the microphone, y'all. I don't do that no more. I'm reformed. But my goodness gracious, do you understand that you share the very life and glory of God Himself and that is your inheritance as a follower of Jesus Christ? Because it changes everything. Everything. The way you think, the way you look, the way you feel, what you eat, what you drink, how you treat people, how you do your work, what you're looking forward to. It changes everything. Christian, you are one. We are those who share the very life and inheritance of Jesus Christ Himself to the praise of the glorious grace of God. What's the application point? Just think about that. Pray about that. And ask God to help you live like you believe it. So share. We're like, yay! For I'm a jolly good fellow. For... Second application point is suffer. <laughs> what was it Peter said? Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. Don't count it as something strange. What was it James said? Count it all joy when you encounter trials of many kinds. Why? Because suffering leads to glory. And glory is our birthright. It's our inheritance. But it's fitting. It's right. It's entirely appropriate for God to perfect us just like He perfected our Savior as we learn obedience through suffering. It's not just pie in the sky by and by. It's suffering in the here and now. And what a paradox given to us at the cross, like John Stott said. What was it Paul said we're crushed? But we ain't broken. We're beaten down, but we're not destroyed. Christopher Watkins says this in his book, Biblical Critical Theory. This is several sentences, so stay with me. Suffering, thinking about suffering. The cross escapes the logic of necessity and equivalence in this way. It disturbs the predictable linearity of what Luther calls the theologians of glory. It disturbs that with the disruption characteristic of the theologians of the cross. In the Heidelberg Disputation of 1518, Luther defends the following thesis. Here's Luther's quote. That person does not deserve to be called a theologian who looks upon the invisible things of God as though they were clearly perceptible in those things which have actually happened. Now put your thinking cap on. That's what Luther said. In other words, Watkins says, we cannot draw a straight line between the way things appear now and God's kingdom and ultimate plan. 
Right now, the rich prosper and the poor are downtrodden. For example, that's just an example, but we err if we think that this is a good indicator of God's ultimate intention. In the next thesis, Luther says, He deserves to be called a theologian, however, who comprehends the visible and manifests things of God seen through suffering and the cross. In the Luther's quote, and Watkin goes on to say, in other words, the cross is the lens through which the Christian interprets present reality. This theology of the cross is not merely a way of understanding the meaning of the crucifixion. It's a whole way of doing theology, a powerful biblical figure and a way of being in the world that requires understanding with the eyes of the heart and the eyes of faith. End of quote. But let me repeat that one statement. The cross is the lens through which the Christian interprets present reality. What's that mean? That means when you look at the cross of Christ, you see utter abject failure. You see total defeat. You see suffering and blood and gore and the triumph of the present modern world over this man who said he was God with your natural eyes. But what did we say back in Second Peter? Jesus' victory tour started where? started at the cross. He left the cross and descended down into the depths where the demons were, and He said, I won today. As they spit on me, plucked out my beard, put a spear in my side, nails in my hands, mocked me, and wagged their heads at me, I won! And how did He win? Through suffering to the point of death on a cross. So how are we to look at our suffering? We look at it as God perfecting us and us learning obedience in the midst of it to the praise of His glorious grace. There is no greater opportunity for those of us who are alive in this present day and age, there's no greater opportunity for us to show the glory of God than to show that glory through obedience in the face of suffering. Don't be surprised by it. I would say this, and this is, don't ask God to take it away. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, Paul says in Romans 8, 16, 17. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Yes! Provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. 2 Corinthians 1, 7. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. And Jesus' words in John 16, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But, but, take heart, I've overcome the world. As I stand and stare at suffering in the face, I can take heart because Jesus has overcome the world. My suffering is not light and momentary right now, 
But one day, Paul says in Romans 8, it's going to appear to be momentary light suffering compared to the glory that it brings about for us. Don't despise your suffering. Embrace it and ask God to perfect you as you are obedient through it. Suffer well, Christian. It's part of who you are, who you're called to be. Share, suffer, and finally, source. Oh, my heavens. That word, I can't get past that word. I can't get away from that word. Who, what is the source of all of this? God Himself. I'm, I'm afraid we speak of, sing of, and worship a very nebulous idea of a God. I'm afraid. But there is one God. The eternal being who created everything. To whom everyone and everything owes Him obedience. Why? Because He's the potter. And we're the clay. Does the potter not have the right to do with his own creation whatever he wants? Well, my God would never do something like that. Woe is us who create a God in our own image. Who worship a God that we don't have a clear understanding is the only true God. Who is the omnipotent God, the eternal God, the glorious God, the holy, holy, holy God. Who is the source of all that we are, all that we have, and all the plans that He has made for us and for the world and the cosmos. For Hungary, America, Lithuania, Russia, China, Fiji. He's got the whole, the whole universe exists in Him. And He's the source of this perfect plan and this perfect power that belongs to us as a birthright as the followers of Jesus. He does what is fitting. He does what is entirely appropriate. He works His plan to perfection. That which issues forth from God comes from perfection and is destined for eternal perfection. That's the God who is the source of all of these things. In our passage today, Jesus is referred to as the founder of our salvation. Now, I love that word. And we didn't expound on it because I wanted to expound on it here as we finish in this application point. It can also mean pioneer, captain, He's the trailblazer. The Net Bible says this, the Greek word translated founder is pioneer and it's used of a prince or a leader, the representative head of a family. It also carries nuances of trailblazer, one who breaks through to new ground for those who follow him. It's used some 35 times in the Greek Old Testament 
and four times in the New Testament. And every time in the New Testament, it is referring to Christ. The triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit is the source of our salvation. Jesus the Son is the pioneer, the founder, the trailblazer, the originator of our faith. He has blazed the trail for us and it does go through suffering. But His very source and our very source is a perfect God who is doing everything He is doing to the praise of His glory and for the good of His people. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. All this is from God. He's the source. Last passage. Paul in Colossians 3. If then, and it literally is since then, Christian, since you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. He's the very source of our very life, and it's a very, very good life. that we share in with Him, that we suffer well because of Him, and we recognize Him as the source of it all to the praise of His glorious grace. Let's pray. Father, <laughs> You are patient with us. You are kind to us. You have devised, if that's the right word, and have been working a perfect plan to the praise of Your glorious grace from eternity past, and will You will continue to do so through eternity future. And God, in Your grace, because of the great love with which You have loved us, You have included us in that plan. And You have given us, as the fuel that we need to walk in obedience in the midst of this plan, You have given us Your very life. God, help us to know what we share in Christ, the very life of God, a perfect inheritance obtained by the perfect work of the perfect Son. God, help us to suffer well, not despising the shame. And may we know that, God, it all comes from You. You are the source of it all. And may we adequately, in the power of your Spirit, which is perfect, may we adequately praise and glorify you with these lives that you have given us. Until we are perfect and image you forth all through eternity, God, help us to be faithful. And if there be anybody within the sound of my voice who doesn't know that they can share life with Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, convict them of their sin. Breathe life into them that they might confess faith in the finished work of Jesus to take away the penalty for their sins and to give them Jesus' perfect righteousness. May they share in the life of Christ by your doing today. And we ask it all to the praise of your glorious grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction?
This one's my favorite. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed, but stay and eat with us if you can.